If you would, take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Take a bit of a break from our study in the book of Ezra. I know. <laughs> We're going to get our hearts and minds prepared to take the elements together. There maybe, there's maybe been one or two other times that we have aligned baptism and the Lord's Supper, and I, and I think it is fitting every now and then to do so because it draws our attention to the two realities of living the gospel life. The, the act of baptism being that one-time event that is a reflection of the one-time saving event of Christ. And in other words, I don't need Jesus to be re-crucified again, uh, nor do I need to be saved again. The act of baptism demonstrates not only the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, but the sufficiency of His saving work. Yet at the same time, that doesn't mean gospel work is done. That doesn't mean that we no longer think about Christ crucified and resurrected. And so we take of the elements of the Lord's Supper— And we do that regularly because we as God's people need to consistently be brought back to what is the essence of our faith, why we do what we do, why we are what we are, and it is is found in Christ and Christ himself. So to put both of these together, uh, I think, is is a helpful way then to examine uh, what it means to be a gospel people. And so we'll give all of our attention to this. Uh, as, as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be, we'll be taking our, our thoughts in preparation for uh, the elements from this instruction Paul gives to the church in Corinth. And so as you're still finding your way there, I'll, I'll begin by saying this. It, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's pretty amazing to think that we're one month away from Thanksgiving which means we're two months away from Christmas. Once again, the year shows an uncanny ability to move a lot faster than you ever really realize it could. And so here we are, nearing the end of the year. And in all that goes along with what we call the holiday season, there is a feature in which we all engage, and it's not only that this involves food, but the holiday season is the season of big family meals, right? It's a time of year when we may gather, and perhaps on the days themselves, right? Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Day or maybe Christmas Eve. But, but even beyond that, say the time after Thanksgiving but before Christmas, there may be family reunions. There are other uh, get-togethers where families come together and they, they share a meal. Now, the sharing of this meal can be really great. I mean, usually it is a meal of of some significance. It's usually probably more expensive. It, it involves maybe, you know, some uh, a little bit more involved types of cooking, ideally more homemade stuff, right? Stuff that we really love to eat. We eat a ridiculous amount when we gather around for these various meetings together. But beyond the eating, it, it's just a good time, right? You're with family, uh, it should be a good time of, rem- of remembering and talking and, and, and connecting with one another. 
In some cases, these meals may be the only time you see some family members. So on the one hand, that this season can be marked by some, by some really good moments as we gather around a table and eat together. But it can also be awkward, right? I'm going to give you a little secret. You ready? People may not know this. But sometimes, families can be dysfunctional. I know, I know, it's a shock, all right, but that's what everybody else deals with. Uh, I know, you're thinking, ah, that's crazy, but they can be. Families can be dysfunctional, and there, there are few moments where, that, where the awkwardness of that reaches a higher level than at the holiday meal gathering, Right? I mean, ideally, again, that table should be one of of fun and enjoyment and getting together. But at times, if people are not getting along, that can be a long meal. It can feel awkward. It can feel tense. For whatever reason, that dysfunction has a way of just kind of, you know, laying that, that dampening blanket over everything. Of course, add to that then what what has been the polarization of our culture in light of politics, in light of health issues, and boy, that table can be tricky. And my guess is there may be one or two of you who are a little, uh, you know, a little worried about that coming up, maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas for you, that there's going to be, you know, we know we're going to be around the table and -and so-and-so believes such and such and there's this thing going on, right, that there could be this kind of just initial sense of, well, this is hard. It's hard to come around a table when the people sitting around that table are not getting along. And in fact, the irony of it is that it actually does the opposite. Rather than being a meal that brings everybody together, it only serves to at times deepen the sense of dysfunction. Unfortunately, the same can be true when we gather around the Lord's table. I'm going to let you in on another secret. Churches can be dysfunctional. Relationships in churches can be dysfunctional. I know it's a shock. Can't imagine it, right? Can be. This takes on a unique problem, though, in the life of the church. Because when we gather around the table that Christ established for us about Him, but we do it in such a way when we are not honoring Him and one another, we end up dishonoring the very thing this table should be honoring. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, it is the most extensive teaching in the Bible on the Lord's Supper. It is probably also the first written account of it. The letter to the church in Corinth was written before the Gospels were written. And so we're, we're just 20 years removed from Christ's ascension. We're, we're just 20 years removed from that first day when the church was birthed and they immediately started not only uh, getting into the doctrine of the apostles, but they prayed together and they, we know right from the beginning, right from day one, they broke bread together. That didn't mean they got together just to go out for a meal. It meant they took the Lord's Supper right from the beginning 
But unfortunately, rather than being a chapter instructing us on just kind of the basic in and outs, it is a chapter, it is a passage of Scripture that is written because this church, the church in Corinth, is a church of radical dysfunction. Rather than giving them words to commend them and to make this a special moment and to treat it, you know, to, to be able to enjoy it and celebrate it. Instead, he challenges the church in Corinth with what is their dysfunctional relationships with one another. And therefore, as a result, because they come to the Lord's table with so much dysfunction among them, rather than honoring it, they are dishonoring it. And so as we prepare to take this, these elements together, I, I want to take just a few minutes and look at Paul's instruction. Really, in a lot of ways, it, it stands a bit on its own, though we'll make some comments as we go. And here's how I want to do this. There's no notes in your bulletin. There's nothing on the screen. I just want you in the text, considering how Paul gives this. And we're going to do it a little different. We're going to start at the end. Meaning, I'm going to begin with, with what is Paul's conclusion and exhortation to the church in Corinth. Chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now stop there for just a moment. If that's not enough to at least get you to think twice before we take these elements... You should read it again. There's a lot of bad things that we could do out there, but my guess is being guilty of the body and blood of Christ is right at the top of bad things to be done. What he means is, he's saying, whoever eats in an unworthy manner, what you are doing is you are trampling on the very sacrifice of Christ. You are, in essence, bringing upon yourself the very guilt of the sin that Christ was standing in place in your place for. It is a serious and sobering, I would contend, it is as sobering a statement as you find in the Bible. Don't eat this in an unworthy manner. Don't just go through the motions. Don't you dare go to the kitchen and get some orange juice and a Pop-Tart. That's what pastors were telling people to do virtually. If you did it, you got some praying to do, all right? You got some praying to do before we take of these elements. Do not do this in an unworthy manner. So what do we do? Well, notice how he follows that. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, take, take a, a deep dive into heart and mind. Evaluate where you are in terms of your fellowship with Christ and with one another. Make, make sure that your heart and mind in the place you should be. If there is sin in your life, confess it. That's the good news of the grace that is exhibited and demonstrated through this very meal. The grace is available to you, immediately available to you. It is grace already given in Christ, so avail yourself of it. Examine yourself, because then verse 29 says... For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. All right, so again, these are sobering words. This exhortation Paul gives to this church, 
if you didn't know anything else about the letter, if this is where you jumped in on the letter, surely your brain would already be working thinking, wow, something's really off. That, that this is the language that Paul would use. We know Paul's not one to mince words, but boy, this is really strong. Don't take this in an unworthy manner. If you do, you, 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 are, you are bringing judgment upon yourself. And in fact, God's judgment may come in the form of physical death. That's strong. So what's the problem then? What's going on in Corinth that has elicited this kind of statement? Well, there are two fundamental issues. They're tied with one another. One, Paul is warning them about their dishonorable actions at the table because they are dishonoring Christ's church, meaning the people of God. So jump back to verse 17. Notice how he says this. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. Anybody got any questions where Paul's going with this? Anybody thinking, oh, he's being subtle here. So, so not only is he saying, I don't have any words of praise for you. In fact, what I'm telling you, the fact that you are still getting together, not only is it not bettering you, it's making your problem worse. Here's the implication. You would be better off not taking the elements than taking them in an unworthy manner. It'd be better if you don't come. It'd be better if you don't show up. It'd be better if the church didn't meet. That's what he's suggesting. I'm not praising you in any of this instruction. What's the problem? Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Now, we already know from this letter, if you were to study it, and we did a few years ago, if you were to go back and read the beginning, you find this church is divided at every level of church life. There's theological division in the church. They're divided over the leadership. Some were saying, I followed this guy who was here at this period of time, or I followed that guy, or I followed that guy. So they were dividing based on who the, the quote-unquote pastor was at the time. It's a good thing churches never do that today. Anyway, so, so they were dividing over leadership like that, right? Who's the guy in charge? And this is the one that I prefer. They were divided over sexual ethics. They, they were divided over whether or not to call somebody out who was engaged in gross immorality. They were divided over spiritual gifts. Those, were the, those with the flashy, supernatural, shiny ones were, were a notch above everybody else. They were divided economically. Those who had were better than those who did not have. So at nearly every level, they are divided. And Paul says, so I, so I believe this. There's division everywhere I turn. Everything I've heard from you people, there is division. But then he goes on to say this. <clears throat> he continues, verse 19, For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now that may sound odd. What he's saying is we've got to have these divisions because one of these divisions is the true one. <laughs> And the only way I can tell who the goats are from the sheep is because we've at least got this group that is focused and attentive to what matters the most. So yeah, these are necessary because it's the only way we can weed out the rest of you. Again, it's a strong, it's a strong word that Paul's giving here. But then he says this, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. This is a good reminder to us it is possible to take the elements of the Lord's Supper and not participate in the Lord's Supper. That's how I read that. It's possible to eat the bread, drink the cup, 
go through the motions, do the responsive reading, sing the songs, engage in prayer. It's possible to do all that stuff and not actually remember the body and the blood of Christ. So notice he's now going to drill down, verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. See, here's the way the early church would take the Lord's Supper. You think we made up potluck? We were just about 2,000 years behind, all right? Church has always been doing potluck. In some cases in the early church, it was necessary. So what they would do is they would prepare food at home. They would then bring it to the gathering of the church once a week at least. And, and after they were done with the service, they would eat. They, they would have meals. They'd call them love feasts. And these were really important because what they would do is they would pool all of that food, all right, and everybody would come through and eat. So the poorest among them, that could very well have been the best meal they got all week. But not in Corinth. In Corinth, the, the well-to-do are bringing their spread and they're keeping it right at the table that they're sitting at. No one else is invited until this. And there's, there, there's, there's bits and pieces that suggest here's what would happen. When they were done eating, if there was some left over, then the poor could get it. And then here's what they would do. After taking the meal, after eating the meal together, then they would observe the elements of the supper itself. So they would bring out bread, they would bring out wine, they would serve bread and wine, and they would, they would engage in, not quite the way we do, but something of a similar sort. But by that time... Apparently, there's a group of them that were snookered, drunk. They're drinking, they're getting drunk off of the wine that's to be used to remember the Lord's table. Some are hungry because they didn't get fed. Others have had way too much. And yet they're still gathering, they're still taking the elements, and what this suggests is they still think they're doing something spiritual. Paul says you're not. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. If you ever want to know what it looks like when Paul is shouting, when he's writing, it's that. Imagine him shouting. This is all the finger pointing and voice raising you can imagine. That's the intensity of the language that's used here. There's a way to say, who do you think you are? Challenging them. And so what is the fundamental problem? They are dishonoring, they are despising the church of God. They dishonor the table because they're dishonoring one another. And so as a result, then they are dishonoring Christ himself. So then this is followed with the words of institution, with, within the description of what happened that night when Jesus changed the Passover to the Lord's Supper. And if you only read verses 23 through 26, you wouldn't know anything was wrong you read before and after, and what you find is Paul is having now to, to punctuate his words by emphasizing the uniqueness, the, the, the soberness of the moment because of what it represents. And he's suggesting this is the very thing they're dishonoring. They're not only dishonoring Christ's church, but they're dishonoring Christ's own sacrifice. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often, for as, often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So then Paul recounts for us words given to him by Christ himself on how this supper began, what this meal was all about. Two elements then are, are, are in focus. Bread, which symbolizes the body of Christ, the body that was, that was broken, the body that, that bore the wrath of God against our sin, a body that was a substitute for our own. So as we eat of the bread, this is what we remember, that which was done to Christ on our behalf. And then the cup. He gives us this cup that symbolizes then the blood of Christ, reminding us that this this was no just mere punishment, this was death. He had to bleed to the point of death. Blood was necessary for forgiveness to be extended. This was the law. And so in drinking the cup, we are reminded that the Son of God, fully divine, shed His own blood blood to the point of death so that we might be redeemed, justified before God. And so as we take of these elements together this morning, this is what we should then consider. We go back to verses 27, 28, and 29. We don't want to do this in a dishonoring way. Instead, we want to examine ourselves. So ask yourself this question, how is my fellowship with God's people? And how is my fellowship with my Savior? Am I in communion with Christ? And am I in communion with one another? It's almost as if that's why we call it communion. Because it designates communion that is vertical and communion that is horizontal. In just, in just one minute, we are going to pray, and I'm going to give us, like I normally do, an opportunity for just personal, private prayer. So it's a way for you just to reflect and pray and ask for God's forgiveness. Then as the elements are passed, it provides another opportunity as it gets to you, an opportunity to pray as others are receiving. It gives you an opportunity to pray. And here's what I want you to do, to not only think about you and your relationship with Christ, but one of the great reasons why it's important that we pass the plate. This is why this matters so much to us. We're not not just being contrarians when we didn't want to do virtual Lord's Supper. Because we think there is something right and theological about the fact that when you take that plate and you hand it to somebody else, you are saying that the means by which I'm made right with God is the exact same means by which you need to be made right with God. That I'm not a little closer to God than you were. I needed just as much Jesus as you did. There is something that says we are in this together because ultimately we are before God who we are only because of Christ. And this gathering is really the only way to say that. I would argue. We would argue. And so as you pass that plate, pray for the person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, the person on either side of you. And let that be an opportunity where you make communion communion, where you are thinking about Christ and one another. So I'd invite you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. Spend some time just where you are offering up a prayer before God, a prayer of confession, a time of examination as we turn our attention to take the elements together this morning. I'll close our time in prayer in just a moment. God of mercy, as your people, we turn our hearts and minds toward you and toward the sacrifice 
of our Savior. We come in thanksgiving because of what this table represents, and that is the means by which we have been saved in Christ. But even more so, we come thoughtfully, soberly, being reminded of of the price that was paid so that we might be justified. And, And so, Father, we do come as a people confessing our sin, confessing our inability to earn what has been given to us, confessing the ways in which we still allow our flesh to rear its ugly head in our relationships with one another and how we live and in doing what we should not and in not doing what we should. And so, Father, we ask that based on this finished work of Christ, that that, that we would know your ongoing grace and mercy to forgive and to restore us into fellowship with you. So as we take of these elements, we pray we do so in a manner that is worthy of the Savior that we worship that it is a way for us to, again, keep in the center of our minds and hearts the gospel itself as we physically eat and physically drink and we are reminded of the price that was paid so that we might be saved. And we pray, God, that our Savior is honored and that you are glorified as we worship this morning by taking of the elements together. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.